What's up, guys, and welcome back to the show. This episode of Bitcoin Rapid Fire is supported by CoinKite and Fountain. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or have been stacking for years, CoinKite has what you need to secure and use your Bitcoin properly. Taking self-custody is the only way to truly own your Bitcoin, and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet is a time-tested, best-in-class solution for doing just that. If your Bitcoin is still on an exchange, you are missing the entire point of Bitcoin. And as many recent examples have shown, you are exposing yourself to an unnecessarily high risk of having someone else take or lose your money. CoinKite has what you need to fix that situation. They also have something called a block clock, an internet-connected countertop display for showing when blocks are found by miners, exchange rates in various currencies, exchange rates in sats, and much more. At this point, it's effectively a must-have for any serious Bitcoin aficionado. Use the promo code VALIS, V-A-L-L-I-S, and get 5% off this and everything else at CoinKite.com. As the friction of sending Bitcoin payments trends towards zero, a whole new way of interacting online is emerging, which has taken on the title of Value for Value, which, as you might have guessed, is the concept of sending value, specifically sats, back for whatever value has been received. Fountain.fm has been a pioneer in this new domain and allows podcast listeners to stream or send one-off payments directly to podcasters should they wish to send a token of thanks or appreciation for their work. Getting started is easy. Just download the app on Android or iOS, and you can either top up your Fountain wallet with a bank card or send a few sats there from another wallet. Alternatively, you can even earn sats by listening to episodes and clips and build up your balance that way. To learn more, visit Fountain.fm today. I'm having a beer too, by the way. Nice. What time is it there? Same. It's one o'clock. Yeah. My Just man. Ease up the nerves a little bit. I get nervous <laughs> with these things, man. So. All right. Well, I guess we're into it now. Why do you get nervous? I mean, not that it's not as unusual, you know. I, I I've done it a million times now, so I can't necessarily relate anymore. But what what's? I, th- I think that there's nerve. What makes you nervous? There's about certain it? things that you want to keep private and uh, you just, you're not sure if you will <laughs> just blurt well, it out somehow. Well, yeah, I just, just the, the idea of, of trying to have your, uh, I just try and be thoughtful. And so it just, I'm on edge a little bit, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's similar to like giving a presentation or doing a musical performance or something. Yeah. At first you just have a little bit of this uh, anxiety about, how you're going to present the information or the ideas that you're presenting, you know, going to do. So totally. Yeah. I, anytime I've done, well, anything public facing, whether it's a podcast or a speech or a debate without fail, if I go in, if, if, if my, um, preparation is based on me remembering shit, like, like, oh, I want to say this stuff. It, it's horrible. Like, I, I did a debate with, uh, what's his name? Larry someone. Lawrence Leopard, maybe? No, that's uh, that's someone else. Anyways, he, he, he works for the Cato Institute. He's like a monetary theorist guy, you know, and he's not too hot on Bitcoin, but he's hot on gold and he takes money from shitcoin foundations and that's a whole nother story but point being is like i i, I debated him at, at pork fest in 2021 and i'd never done a debate ever really and certainly not on bitcoin and 
so I didn't know what to do. The format was different than what I was usual to you, like, like used to, I didn't know really how to go about it. And I just totally went about it the wrong way. Like I thought about what I wanted to say. I thought about the points I wanted to hit and I went up and kind of did it. And, you know, after our first like 10 minute bit, then we had a bit of a back and forth and that was much better because that was more off the cuff and natural. But I, I listened to it back afterwards and it was just very kind of like rigid and not my style at all versus mm -hmm. when I, my preparation is best when I learn about my opponent or the person I'm speaking with, what their interests are, what their angle is, all that kind of stuff. And then just let it hang, you know, like then just go into it and see what emerges naturally. And I find that, you know, one, I'm much more comfortable because I'm not trying to remember anything. I'm just responding in the moment. And usually it comes off a lot better. So, um, so I hear you, you know, you want, you want to put yourself in the best position to actually just be authentic and express what you want to express. And most of the time I find for me, it's about not, pre not preparing in, in the formal way, preparing in a way that just equips you with what you need in the moment to respond in a authentic and informed sort of way. Yeah. And if you've got like, for example, I've, I've been doing some presentations at Bitcoin meetups and, um, there's a lot less nerves there because it's I'm presenting to a audience that understands my language, you know, and this, right. And the information is just something that I know well. Um, and so it's easier for me to just let that go and kind of see where it, where it ends up. And obviously there's a lot, there was a lot of preparation in the presentation, you know, I practiced it, made my slides and had my note cards and everything, but yeah, for sure. It's, it's uh, if if I go yeah if I was going into a debate and um, I had to hit these certain points definitely would make me a little more I'd be nervous about that. So you know the the other thing and by the way we're I don't know if you caught me saying it but we're recording now so just FYI. Um, but the the other thing um, is that I don't know like I know this is going to sound weird because speeches are a very normal thing but. I don't feel I have anything directly to like state to anybody, you know, like I, I'm much more comfortable and enjoy like a conversation, even if the conversation is on stage, like where it's two people having a dialogue back and forth and like fleshing out ideas and whatever. But just the idea of like getting up somewhere for 15 minutes or longer and just like speaking at a group of people. I don't know why I have such an issue with it, but I think part of it is like, I don't know if I can presume sufficient uh, like legitimacy in just like dropping my particular perspective on everyone who's just like sitting there listening. You know, I I, I don't know. I th That's my issue. So anytime like in the future, I'd much rather do like, you know, discussions or dialogues, even if they are kind of in a framed up as a, as a speech or presentation, because the whole speaking thing just seems weird. Maybe it's just a matter of experience, but um, it's not something that I, I've gravitated to, you know, since over the course of my time in Bitcoin. I could definitely see that. Like, who am I to be presenting this information? It's, what? It's why am I in this position? Like that. Yeah. What? What? Uh, why should I be held in regard? But uh, I, I actually did a mining panel at. Uh, there was a Lake Satoshi retreat in Mid Michigan in Lanesburg. And um, I was invited to speak on that mining panel. And I didn't think that I was nervous. But then when I, someone recorded the, the video and when I look back on it, I'm, 
so fidgety, you know, like <laughs> I just couldn't sit still. And um, so there was some nerves there too, but I was comfortable in talking about that information and I didn't go back and listen to it all. I might've said some things that were, you know, questionable, like that just come out, like you said, you know, when it's off the cuff, I didn't have any preparation for that whatsoever. I just went up there and talked about the mining projects that I've been doing here with the home mining at the homestead. But yeah, it was, uh, I didn't think I was nervous, but I certainly to everyone else, I'm surely, surely I looked <laughs> nervous. So, well, we're always our worst critics too. So we have to keep that in consideration. But um, speaking of that stuff, I mean, wh why don't you hit me with a with an update? We spoke about a year ago and we talked about, you know, the homestead and what you were doing in terms of permaculture. And I think you had uh, built some structures on your land and you were, you know, Airbnb and hosting Bitcoiners and that kind of stuff. So and I don't I don't think mining was a big aspect of what you were doing at the time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but why don't you tell me what's going on over the last well, year? Sure. Yeah, shortly after we had our first discussion, that I think that led people to realize that they could book a stay and pay with Bitcoin. And so people have rented out the yurt more than a handful of times now and paid with Bitcoin, which has been really cool um, because it's like not only are they getting a cool place to stay, see the homestead, see what I've got going around, but I get to hang out with cool people, too. It's sometimes it's hard because I, you know, I end up maybe spending a little too much time hanging out with the Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoiner guests at the yurt, you know, having beers around the fire and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As but so yeah, a few people have come and stayed um, for uh, at the yurt. And then I, we had some lamb that we wanted to sell in the fall. And I had just, I had just started getting really into Bitcoin meetups when we first spoke. And, and so I took that kind of to the next level where now I, I was going to, um, Grand Rapids, the Southwest Michigan meetup, which is the local meetup where I'm at. Um, then Mid Michigan had just started around that time too, so I went up went up to that meetup. Um, then I was like, well, I might as well go to Bit Devs in Chicago. I've always wanted to do that, and that led me to going to Milwaukee as well. Wow. And so, like, with over the course of the summer, I sometimes I'd go to like three Bitcoin meetups in a month, um, driving a two to two and a half hours to get there. Um, and so that allowed me to kind of market my lamb uh, to the people in those at those meetups. And I ended up selling a bunch of lamb, uh, whole lambs for Bitcoin. Uh, and then so when I went to deliver the lambs, I, would, I went to the meetup and then I gave a presentation. Like I gave a presentation at Southwest Michigan uh, on the eight forms of capital, uh, same in Grand Rapids and then Milwaukee, too, um, which was really pretty cool to be able to share the the food that we're growing and then share some of the information that helped us to grow it in the way that we did. Um, yeah, that's super cool. How, how, how do you find these meetups? Like how, how, how do you question. become aware of them? Like just I, Twitter or is it meetup.com or is there some other, I'm sure there's, there's gotta be a resource for Bitcoin meetups at this point. I didn't really find any of them through the traditional means. I think it was just through um, interacting with people online and then going to the meetups themselves and then, like Michigan has a really, I think, I'm I don't know too much about how the other scenes are in other states or in other regions, but like Michigan, there's a lot of people that will go from they'll attend the Southwest Michigan meetup, the Grand Rapids meetup, and the Mid Michigan meetup. They'll kind of cross pollinate between all of them, um, and then there's like an Ann Arbor meetup, a Detroit meetup, and then the Mid Michigan one, and then there'll be people kind of circling between those three, and wow. so there's overlap between all these people going to the meetups, and then. We have telegram groups now where, you know, 
people will post their information on their next, next meetup at, in those groups. And so it's sort of like self-propagating uh, the, the news about these meetups where meetup.com is becoming, every time I go to a meetup, there's typically one person that might've found it on meetup.com, right, yeah. but the majority of people have found it through the grapevine more, so to speak. What, um, what kind of attendance turns out? What, what's, the, what's the turnout like? It varies. I mean, at month to month, it, it really can, it can be anywhere from five or six people to 25 to 30 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that also depends on kind of if there's a presentation, um, if there's like somebody, a presentation that's particularly interesting. I think Bitcoin price has a lot to do with the meetup attendance. Right. When, when mm-hmm. price is up, people show up, you know, and people find other stuff to do when the price isn't kicking so hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the attendance is kind of pretty variable. It, there's always the core group of people, um, it seems, a core group of 10 or 12 people uh, that are at the Grand Rapids meetup, at the Mid-Michigan meetup, um, and the Southwest Michigan meetup. So It's the so Chicago interesting. And, like, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the whole meetup phenomenon is so interesting. I mean, not only are you able to meet other Bitcoiners and build those relationships and share information and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But obviously it's the creation of like a global network of like-minded individuals, right? Because there's meetups in the States and Canada and South America in Europe, you know, and these are the places where, as you say, like you go and you're like, Hey, I, one of the things I do is I have lamb, you know, it's, it's well-raised, it's healthy. It's, you know, it's the shit you basically all want. So, you know, here I am a trusted vendor of a product that you want. And like, it's, that is just happening all over the place, right? And I think that this is obviously the the beginning of, or at least an aspect of the Bitcoin circular economy, you know, and the, the the trust bonds that are required for that kind of being established. And it's so cool that it's happening everywhere and that it's such a, you know, a useful resource for people to connect with other Bitcoiners and whether it's cooperate, whether it's start businesses, whether it's help each other, whether it's sell to each other, just think it's so cool that like it's it's a legitimate global phenomenon albeit you know early days but uh yeah it's it's a fact i i love to see it basically i think it's really blown up in the last year uh i i think i don't know there's at least in michigan those meetups did not exist earlier in the summer they've they're all kind of approaching their one-year-old uh birthday you know and um so it's really cool too because like the first thing that I brought to the Southwest Michigan meetup was syrup to sell. And I don't think the thought had really crossed anyone's mind that, oh, this can be a venue for me to like bring my stuff and exchange it for Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the same time, I think the organizers of the Grand Rapids meetup started bringing eggs and honey. And so this sort of, it's kind of like how man discovered fire in more places at once at the same time. It's like, because the Bitcoin meetup started happening, it just was a clear uh, connection. Like, well, if there's all these Bitcoiners in the same room, maybe they want to buy my stuff with their Bitcoin. And so now I, I think like sometimes people might get discouraged thinking like, well, I don't have anything. I'm not producing. I don't have a homestead. I'm not producing any food, nothing I can bring to sell. But actually what's starting to happen is like, there's a guy who lives really close to a really badass creamery. Um, and he comes to the Southwest Michigan be- meetup and so we can kind of all place our order with him and say, I want two, two quarts of yogurt, two pounds of cheese, uh, half a pound of butter. And then he'll go pick all that up. He'll buy it with his own cash and then sell it to us for the Bitcoin. And so now awesome. it's not, you don't need to necessarily be producing the product. You can actually just go and be a source for this high quality food that you can't get 
elsewhere, or it could be anything else, really. Right, right. Um, and the other thing, too, is like people are starting to bring not only their, so that would be like material capital, right, that you're bringing in exchange for the financial capital of the Bitcoin. But you can also bring your intellectual capital in the form of, of doing the presentation on the eight forms of capital. Or uh, there's another, there's other presentations like Bitcoin psychology that has been given at the Grand Rapids meetup. And it uh, was also at um, the Lake Satoshi retreat. So you might even just have information to share at these meetups. Um, and like, I like to participate in the value for value concept. So there was one, one guy who did uh, just like a blue wallet tutorial, you know? And so it's like, you're showing people how to use Bitcoin, back up the seed phrase, do these basic things. I sent him some sats for that just to be like, Hey man, that's, we want more of this, you know, totally, create the incentive totally. to, to do some more good stuff. I, and, I um, fucking love that. So it's just, I think that these, I think you're right. Like the Bitcoin meetups has a potential to be, well, it literally is a, a, a micro circular economy where right. I would buy some, I would send my, I, I would sell some syrup to somebody and then I turn right around and the guy that has the yogurt doesn't want any of my syrup, but I send him my sats. Mm. You know what I mean? That I got, mm. I just got from the syrup. And so it's, the Bitcoin is literally just spinning around the room as people are exchanging uh, at the end of the evening. Yeah. And you can see these micro circular economies connecting to one another and the same thing happening between each of those circular economies. So, um, yeah, it's it's so awesome to see what uh, out of curiosity, you know, because, you know, I'm into this kind of stuff. But what what's what was the Bitcoin psychology presentation all about? Well, so that was more um, about how it's why is it so hard to orange pill people? Like when, when you have somebody who has never, doesn't really know Bitcoin, isn't familiar with it, and you tell them all the reasons why you love Bitcoin and that you think it's going to be like great to save their, you know, it's the lifeboat, right? Mm -hmm. um, get on. Well, and by doing that, you're basically destroying all of their, their everything that they think is safe. You, right. You're crushing their worldview that the world that they're living in is not actually safe. And so it becomes a, a repulsive idea because they're totally. like, I, in order to except that the Bitcoin is the answer, I have to now destroy all the stuff that I thought was good for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just kind of like breaking down how and why that uh, that happens and, and some giving some sort of ideas about how to maybe approach it in a different way. You know, yeah. try and I take someone's safety cue and turn it, or someone's danger cue and turn it into a safety cue, basically, is what yeah. came down I, to. I, I totally agree with that. You know, be, and, as you say, I mean, like people kind of maybe fail to recognize just how fragile people's worldviews are, right? And so they're very, uh, they treat them very carefully and anything that is disruptive to that, whether it's, you know, orange pilling related or any of the madness we saw over the last three years, you know, like believing that your government would do X to you or believing that your trusted institution would lie to you or whatever it might be that's far too disruptive to the edifice, the, you know, the architecture of your entire worldview. And that is the very thing that allows you to confront the world with some semblance of confidence and not just, be, you know, cower in, in the face of the chaos and uncertainty of the whole world. You know, that's literally what your perspective is doing for you. And when someone comes along, it's like, oh, all that shit you believe is actually wrong and you're being lied to and everything is corrupted and this is the way to fix it. It's like, as you say, I mean, it's, it's pulling the rug out of out from under way too much and it that would be way too disruptive if someone allowed themselves to believe it you know it'd be too disruptive to their stability and so therefore they don't and they reject it as you say they recoil at it and that's but you know and this ties in I, i've been saying this for a while now but i think it ties into the 
um, experience that you were just explaining at meetups, you know, people coming together and interacting genuinely, authentically, honestly, with aligned values, sharing their ideas, sharing their talents and skills, sharing their products and services in a fair, consensual, like, you know, high vibe sort of way. That's the thing that I think orange pills people most effectively and more broadly kind of like living out the example of what you're proselytizing for i.e I. kind of like being the best bitcoiner you can be is is the best you know pitch to anyone else because as i always say like if we're right about this then it's going to show up in your life and people like to look at other people and wonder why you know they're not having problems or why things are so good you know and, and then they convince themselves they persuade themselves you know internal persuasion is way more effective than external persuasion but the you know the fact that they could go to a meetup like that and just get a, a sense for how this is all coming together and the way in which people interact, I think that will be far would be far more effective. You know, so if you have that friend, instead of like continuing to like have those long, you know, sit downs with them trying to orange pill them, maybe it's just as easy as like getting them to come to a meetup sometime. You know, case in point for myself, I mean, my my dad was pretty, you know, on board with you know, he was pretty orange pilled prior to doing this, but it was the case that when I brought him to Miami and uh, for the 2022 conference, he was just blown away uh, about that, you know, about the types of interactions and the quality of people that he was interacting with and just how everyone was jiving together and the positivity and the intellectual, like, you know, vigor and the the talking about ideas and the, you know, optimism for the future and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he was just like, he couldn't believe it. And I think that's when people experience that, it's way more powerful than just, you know, their crazy friend telling them that everything is screwed and Bitcoin is the answer. And so I think and I think my sense is that people are starting to get that, that like the hard, hardcore intensive orange pilling is just hasn't been all that effective. And people are seeking other means. And I think they're uh, those means are trying to display the benefits rather than talk about them excessively. I think that it's it's true. Like, there, I I think the reason why I was orange trying so hard to orange pill people in the past is because I wanted to be surrounded by other Bitcoiners. Sure. I just sure. wanted people to join me on this adventure. And now that there are all these meetups that I can go to, that sort of builds a community that I can now participate in. And so it's like instead now instead of trying to bring people that aren't familiar with Bitcoin in or or like get them involved in Bitcoin. I'm trying to find the people who are into Bitcoin that haven't made it out to the meetup yet. And like right. bring, if we can get, I think that there's enough Bitcoiners out there now that if we can just get everybody together, then we can make these circular economies more and more robust. There's just all, all of a sudden, that's the thing too. It's like a, a Bitcoiner that's off on their own, you know, like there's a guy um, that came from the Northwest Indiana region and, uh, his first Bitcoin meetup, he was thinking about doing one in Indiana. So he wanted to come check it out into the Southwest one, see what was going on. And he was of the of the assumption that you never send, spend your sats. Uh, right, and then right. so when he saw that the, the, this, this action was taking place at the end of the night, all of a sudden it's like the light bulb goes off that, whoa, once I know people who have Bitcoin and they, they are willing to transact with it, now the Bitcoin all of a sudden has a lot of utility that you didn't realize before. Um, mm -hmm. And so just like the act of going to the meetup and participating in this, I mean, sure, you could do the same thing with dollars or whatever, but it just makes the, 
it's like sending that first transaction, you know, and you just realize what just happened. But when you're doing it peer to peer and you're exchanging goods and services for it, it's like a whole nother uh, box opening up. It really is. It feels so good. I mean, I can't even imagine like paying a Bitcoin or fiat for their, what if I was buying like lamb off of you, I can't even imagine like pulling out some cash from my pocket and giving to, it just seems so absurd. Like, of course I have to pay you Bitcoin. Like how could you, disrespect another bitcoiner and their work by giving them slave money you know a, a means by which they are slowly stolen from it's just disrespectful you know you got to use sats and i i think this is another change that is perhaps underway and you know of course you want to hodl as much as possible but one if you're spending sats you're probably moving yourself closer to earning sats too which is a great thing but um but I, I do think like the hodl at all cost thing just doesn't uh, just doesn't make sense for the reason I just mentioned. But also it's like, well, you know, your fiat balance could be Bitcoin, you know, could otherwise be Bitcoin. If you're keeping a larger balance in fiat just for spending and you have the opportunity to spend Bitcoin, I mean, what's really the difference, right? Like, I don't think there is much of a difference in the end. But when I first went to El Salvador, that was the same case. I mean, I hadn't really had the opportunity to spend much Bitcoin. It's not that I was actively trying not to but i got down there and i started spending it you know here and there even with you know mostly non-bitcoiners so-called just you know vent like merchants that accepted it as part of the hoopla that was going on and and i like i it felt really good you know like i i love the feeling and i was like yes this is this is how it's supposed to be basically you know this is what we're working towards and uh so i'm a huge advocate of spending Bitcoin, especially when you're interacting or transacting with other Bitcoiners. Yeah, I had a thought in there. Oh, man, just left Lost me. It? Um, yeah, shoot. Um, well, did if it comes back to you, just jump in. But when right. last time we spoke, I think we talked about the eight forms of capital. But just for anyone who, who hasn't listened to that episode, can you run down what, what that is or what those are? Sure. So eight forms of capital is basically when you take the, the permaculture ethics and principles and you apply it to the concept of capital. And so typically what people think of as capital is something like money, financial capital. Um, but there's also other forms that you can, you're ultimately taking your time, which is this um, unsavable resource. It's just always being spent as your as time is passing. And so you're taking your time and you can transform it or turn it into these forms of capital, one being financial capital, but there's also material capital, the stuff, your things, your tools, um, even stuff like gold and silver, um, or living capital in the form of the soil, the trees, the plants, the animals that you have. And then there's more abstract versions or, or forms like your intellectual capital. What do you know? Um, your experiential capital, what, what have you, you know, experienced and how can you translate that? Uh, cultural capital, which is like the collective intellectual capital and experiential capital of a group. Um, the best example I can give of cultural capital is like when we create memes in Bitcoin to like save somebody time from making a mistake, um, like not your keys, not your coins is a great form of cultural capital that helps newcomers to the space realize that they should be uh, securing their Bitcoin in self-custody. That's the safest way to do it. And then our spiritual capital, um, I, I lost track of how many I've gone through. Uh, but there, so these eight forms are, um, they're just ways to transition your, your capital from one thing to another and having a concept of these eight forms, 
then allows you to like build a lot of resilience in your wealth um, because you're able to, instead of just saying, oh, I'm going to hold all this Bitcoin. And then when the time comes, turn it into what I need, you can sort of already have this balance built. Um, social capital is another one. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so you have this balance built of your network, your experience, your intellectual, your cultural stuff, your spiritual um, I think that vital capital is one that's not, it's a ninth form, not necessarily part of the eight that has been introduced by the original originator of the concept, which I can't recall right now, but uh, your health and well-being. So if you have all some of these, some of your time uh, dedicated to developing some financial capital, but also uh, material capital and living capital, so on and so forth, then when it comes time, you per- when something happens, you can sort of trans you know lean on one form or another to bridge that gap and and make your wealth a little bit more resilient have your presentations on that been recorded i recorded one um it's not the greatest it it was like kind of what we were discussing just when you're talking to a uh a blank screen with no one's face it becomes hard to get a sense of the room right so i was like delivering that presentation just like online and uh it didn't. It was a little dry, a little more dry than when I get it on. To get at is the, it on YouTube? Clips. No, it's not posted anywhere. Um, but Throw yeah, I have recorded once. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, I meant to say this earlier, but like, if it if it's at all because you know, like you you have trepidation about it wasn't your best foot forward, and you kind of don't want to put it out for that reason. I mean, I I I think that that's the best reason to put it out you know because you put something if if you if you make a mistake let's say and nobody sees it it really dials down the pressure like you don't get the right feedback you know and also you don't you don't put as much uh not pressure is the wrong word but i don't think you're properly like incentivizing yourself to do better next time like i'm of the opinion you put it all out there like you know blemishes and all and that you know Gives injects you into the proper feedback loop and puts your skin in the game so that next time, you know, you, you, you try to do better, you know, and you do what you need to do to do better. So put that shit up there and then send me the link. Cause uh, I'd love to, to watch it. But yeah, I do think I'll that's do a, another one on Vita or something. I'll just do it again live. Um, yeah. And record yeah. that, you know, I, I, so actually I'm going to be doing this presentation at the homestead. I'm doing a class here uh, on the 17th of September. Um, it's going to be an applied permaculture course. Um, so I'll go over all of the ethics and principles of permaculture, the three ethics and the 12 principles, along with the eight forms of capital, as well as how I think um, Bitcoin and permaculture overlap and just use examples from how I've applied these things around the homestead. So we'll sit down and talk for a little while about it. And then we'll actually take a walk around and interact with all the systems that I built the cannabis uh, rabbit colony, the cannabis garden rabbit colony, um, a food forest that we've got, our rotational grazing sheep systems, um, all the crazy Bitcoin mining contraptions that I've got now. I've got a Bitcoin mining dehydrator, a Bitcoin mining clothes dryer, so on and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, that, that I will be doing that eight forms of capital in person again, and maybe right. I'll be able to figure out a way to record that. That would be super cool. And and I I like that framing because, you know, I'll, I'll, it seems like, especially in fiat land, because there is this, I think there's a, the Bitcoin culture, broadly speaking, is beginning to impress upon people, you know, the importance of developing other forms of capital, even if they don't 
see it through that type of lens or language. But, you know, a lot of people just think, well, I get the thing that has the most optionality, i.e. money, and I can turn it into all those other forms of capital when, whenever I need to or whenever I want to. But that's obviously not necessarily necessarily the case in forms of spiritual or social or cultural or those forms of capital. They have to be cultivated by you as you as you act, as you go through life, as you interact with people. And um, you know, in a certain sense, you you could say, especially perhaps in this spiritual form. But I, I think of it in terms of oftentimes like your character. Maybe that's the most important form of capital. You know, because money is kind of like an extension or amplification of you, of your character, uh, yeah, and of course, like money, again, it's that op- maximum market or social optionality. So you can you can acquire things for for sure, and you can kind of push your will through other people. That's another way of looking through money. Like, I can make you adopt my will by giving you money. So I want to dig that hole. I give you money. You dig that hole for me. That's that's kind of that sort of thing, but you can't neglect the the refinement or the acquisition if you like of other those other forms of capital and you know i was i was speaking on another pod recently i can't remember which one might have been a hodl hang but we were talking about um cuz a, a podcast we did with sailor in miami and he was he kind of dropped on everyone that he was going to die with his coins right he was just and uh I think that was the first time he said it and we were a bit taken aback and I asked him like, are you considering that? And he kind of like made a little joke, like, well, didn't I just consider it? And we all had a laugh. But after that podcast, I thought about it more, you know, I was thinking about, cause I think a lot of us think to whatever extent we're able to accumulate Bitcoin wealth throughout our lives, we would like to pass that on to our children so that they have a leg up in the world and they're more financially secure and stable and they can pursue what's most meaningful to them without necessarily having to, you know, deal with the, uh, the mon- mundane, uh, but having to stress about, you know, the requirements of life, let's say. Um, but subsequent to that podcast, I was thinking about it a lot more. And in the recent podcast, we were talking about like, maybe that's not the right way to do it because, you know, maybe you leave your wealth to your child or your grandchild and it gets blown on the the cliche Coke and hookers thing. And then, you know, then what was it for? You acquired that capital through your own character, through your own value creation and all that other stuff. And then it gets pissed away by somebody else. And so like, is there a different way to do it? And, you know, what if you died with your, all of your wealth and so when you're dealing with a money like Bitcoin that's absolutely scarce and capped, that is in effect a pro rata purchasing power distribution of the amount of your wealth to everyone, all the other holders of that asset. And then you think, well, all those people are far more likely to have the same values and principles that I have and that I accrued my wealth through, especially if you accrued a lot of it you know, by that circular economy we were alluding to earlier. You know, uh, you know, things like truth and integrity and authenticity and honesty and, and those sorts of things. And so you you bequeath your wealth into that system that far more highly values and rewards those values and principles. And then your job is to help refine, develop, inculcate in your children the character traits that that system will most reward. So instead of having it be a direct um, inheritance, let's say, 
that they get for nothing, right? There's no proof of work, if you like. They just get by virtue of being your child and the corrupting influence that that can have because they just they got a bunch of stuff for nothing. Instead, your purchasing power goes into and expands the system that is basically operating on a higher set of values and principles. And then you you also feel a greater obligation to refine their character because you know you're not leaving them with the, you know, a, a whack of money when you go. And so they're going to need to have the character that's capable of creating value and having other people reward them for that value in this economy and in particular in the Bitcoin economy. And you try to kind of like synthesize, you, you try to have the two match up, right? You want what you inculcate in the child to be the same principles and values that is most highly rewarded by the Bitcoin system. And when I think about that, I'm, I'm like, well, I, I think that's better. I think that doesn't give them the free pass, the potentially corrupting, you know, free pass. They still have to earn their keep. They still have to figure out what's valuable about themselves and what they, what value they can provide to the world or the market or what have you. But it enables the rewards for th their behavior, should it be aligned with those values and principles, to be more greatly rewarded, you know, by 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 dissipating your purchasing power into that, it's just another, you're growing the pie and that pie is then going to feed, you know, your child who you've hopefully raised along those lines. And so, um, I don't know how we got onto, uh, to that particular no, I, notion, but you, what do you, you think bring about up it? a great, uh, a great point. And, and this is, this is got, kind of goes to where this is how I think Bitcoin and permaculture overlap. Because permaculture, a lot of things, a lot of times people think that permaculture means permanent agriculture, but it doesn't mean permanent agriculture necessarily. It means to create a permanent culture. And when I say a permanent culture, I don't mean an ossified culture that is static, but a mm -hmm. culture that is is able to continue, is resilient enough to continue to keep growing and evolving should something catastrophic happen. We've seen examples of cultures uh, rise and fall over time and it's it's always because they haven't been they've fallen because they haven't been resilient enough and so what would what would enable uh, a culture to withstand a catastrophe like that something like bitcoin or permanent money and so when you when you take your money and you don't distribute it you you distribute it to the culture itself to the group of people who are participating in the network um, now you're creating an incentive to build upon the culture right instead of to build upon the individual that you're passing the sats along to and if you're practicing just uh, creating resilience in your wealth with the eight forms of capital, now they can inherit some of the capital, the other forms of capital that you built on, like your your network, uh, your social mm -hmm. capital, your cultural capital, that you're, the culture that you're part of, um, the spiritual capital. Like you said, just instilling some of these values of and principles of permaculture and uh, ones that people respect within the Bitcoin network. And so, yeah, you don't you basically win either way theoretically. Like they're going to get something. Uh, whether you give it to the, give it to them, give them Bitcoin directly or give it to the network as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And that's, that's actually, that's what triggered me to go on that uh, spiel is the, you know, questioning like what, which form of capital effectively is the most valuable and whatever the answer to that may be, because I'm sure people would have, you know, there'd be some contention on that, but you, your framing of having, of you know, having these different forms of capital and actively trying to grow or refine them and not just exclusively focusing on the financial aspect, I think is very important. And, you know, again, the argument potentially being that, you know, 
the capital that is your character and by whatever means that is derived, whether through spiritual means or whatever, uh, maybe that's even more even more important because it's the means by which you accumulate capital and and ostensibly the means by which you accumulate it, you know, righteously in a sense or with integrity rather than, you know, all the other ways that you might acquire financial capital, you know, some good, some bad, some mischievous, some deceitful, whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's also the question, and I'm talking about this a lot now because it's fresh in my mind, but how much of a corrupting, well, there's, there's two points. One, as you mentioned, you adopt or you inherit more than just financial capital and, and, and your parents kind of, you know, build an architecture to facilitate that. And, you know, as, as you know, and as all Bitcoiners know, like incentives run so much of our behavior and determine so many things socially and culturally, you know, what, what does it mean if you know you're not going to inherit, you know, your parents' wealth? Well, what kind of effect does it have on the the bonds of family? What does it have? Uh, what kind of effect does it have on the bonds of community? You know, and I'm, I'm not saying you want to necessarily be beholden or dependent on those, but I think it probably strengthens them. You you know, in your mind, you're probably saying, "Well, I should have strong, trusting relationships with my family and with my community because I'm not an island unto myself anymore, or at least to the same degree." You know, if you just inherit 10 million bucks, you give up the middle finger to everyone, your family, your community, you at least could, I'm not saying you necessarily would, but you know, you can do that. Whereas if you're placed in a situation, in a position where you have to create wealth, you have to get your peers to value you and reward you for something, then presumably you're going to, it's going to necessitate that you put more time into those relationships and you care about them more and you cultivate them more. And that's probably a good thing, you know? So I know it's a radical idea, you know, um, to die with the entirety of one's wealth, but you know, that in addition to, again, the corrupting influence, like I, I think there, and there's probably a middle ground, at least, you know, when we discussed this on, on the hodl hang, there was middle ground, but I'm not, I'm not quite so sure yet. I need, I need to think about it more because I think I may be on the extreme side and I'm, I think that might be, you know, where I'm leaning, but, um, but yeah, if, I mean, if you give someone something for nothing, does it not corrupt them? Does it not neuter the necessity for them to develop, you know, the, the, the necessary character traits for them to one, determine what is really most valuable about themselves. And that's a deeply spiritual journey, if you like, and, a, and an important one in life. And then to transmute that or, or translate that into something that can be provided to the world and something that people are going to reward them for and is going to serve the basis for relationships and social bonds and feed into the culture and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I wonder if if the whole inheritance legacy thing is just the wrong, wrong way to think about uh, how Bitcoin wealth is going to, you know, be recycled throughout the ages. Yeah, it's really uh it's got me thinking like, cause my plan obviously would be to leave what I have to my family. But I guess if like a lot of people, if they were to suddenly go, there's not even really good systems in place to facilitate somebody getting, getting the keys properly accessing the, the sats. Um, and so I think that some of a lot of this will happen unintentionally anyways, where you right. think you're going to get the sats, but the, the, the secret was kept too tight and 
because you never know when you're going to go right because right. that, that was kind of a, a thought too that I was having while you're where you're talking is like well I guess I have some time to decide like I can if I have children you know I can see how they're turning out and like if they would take the bitcoin and and do something to build a better world or if they would take it and seemingly you know and potentially squander it and then decide at that point whether or not I should leave it to them but at the same time while I'm making that decision, I could suddenly <laughs> disappear from the planet. Right. You know, my, my consciousness could go on. And uh, then you have to have one decision made one way or another. Either the keys are uh, open to someone who can then decide what to do or they're kept so tight that nobody else can access it. So that's, yeah. a, that's, that's something I'll have to think about for a while because it's uh, a new idea to me. And, and maybe, maybe the, the happy medium is your Bitcoin wealth is recycled into the you know into the bitcoin network and your worldly wealth let's say like your physical wealth those other assets real estate and the homes and what have you maybe that that's what's left behind because you can't take it with you any anyway so it's, it's necessarily going to be left behind and maybe that kind of ticks both boxes i don't know my my thoughts on this are kind of jarbled at the moment i should sit down and and write something about it to clear clear things in my head but um, you mentioned a few minutes ago, all the stuff that you're doing at the homestead. We touched on some of it last time. I don't even think we really introed you properly when we got started today, but, uh, maybe you could do that briefly, just like what the idea and Genesis behind the homestead is and was, uh, and then tell me about all the stuff you're doing. Cause I don't think we touched on the Bitcoin mining stuff at all. The marijuana rabbit farm. I think there was rabbits last time. I don't know if there was marijuana. So just Tell me what's going on. Yeah, I guess, man, we did kind of miss the the. So, I'm <laughs> I'm Rev Hodel. I'm I'm on Noster primarily now. You can still find me on Twitter or X or whatever it is. But uh, I'm primarily posting information as I, I my basically my adventures and my journeys on Noster. Um, and I have a 20 acre homestead that I've been homesteading at for about eight years now. I do a uh, primary revenue stream for the homestead is Airbnb rentals. We've got a 20 foot yurt and then we rent uh, one level of the house out um, on Airbnb. I'm currently building a 20 foot tiny house to be act as another rental. The goal of our homestead is to ultimately be a homestead school, permaculture school, where those units will be filled with students, instructors and apprentices rather than people coming to enjoy um, the beach and the wineries and some of the other tourist like activities in my area. And so at the homestead. We grow a lot of our own food. Um, I can't say that we grow all of it because we do go to the grocery store. You know, we still get a variety of stuff. If really push came to shove, we could feed ourselves for a, quite a long time with just what we have growing here. But we grow um, lamb. We've got about 40 um, sheep on pasture right now, 20 ewes, 20 lambs. Uh, we do have uh, rabbits, which we eat for meat as well. And those are integrated with our cannabis garden. And so the rabbits weed and fertilize the cannabis for us. And we actually feed the cannabis to the rabbits. And so when the rabbits eat the cannabis, they store some of the CBD components in their fat. And then we get, when we eat the rabbit, we actually get a medicinal dose of the cannabis uh, really? in the form of That's the how that works? Yeah. And so- um, Are then, you, is there, I mean, I hate to be the uh, sauce person, but is there, is there like, is that legitimate? Is there something to back I mean, that I up? Haven't, I haven't had it tested. You know, but I, I know that when you like cannabis gets stored in your fat, when you get like drug tested and everything, it stays right. in your body for a long time. 
And so you can only make, you can easily make the assumption that when they're eating the cannabis, they're also storing those components in their fat. Um, wow. And, and tell me, so they live amongst the, the weed plants and they fertilize it obviously with their shit. And is it a pest control thing as well? Or, or they, they, yeah. they eat the, you said they eat the cannabis. So maybe they are the pests to a certain degree. Yeah, I have, they've, they, I, so I'm allowed to grow 12 plants here in Michigan and they've got me down to nine so far this season. <laughs> so they've gotten three of them. They're having a good um, time. But the, I guess the, the whole idea with the system was one, we wanted to have a space for the rabbits to be free to breed and we wanted to have a colony. And so we already had a fence set up for the cannabis. And this is where the, like applying the permaculture principles come into play. It's like, so we, by integrate, like we realized that all we had to do is figure out a way to keep the rabbits from totally destroying the cannabis. Um, and then they, that would actually form a beneficial relationship if we integrate those two systems together. And one, I mean, we're saving space. We're doing two things in the same area, same uh, square footage footprint. But two, now we have this, this uh, cannabis is able to flourish more because of the rabbit fertility that they're adding. And then we're actually able to produce some of our own meat for lower cost because of the effect they're eating the cannabis. Mm. Um, and really we can grow by growing outside, you're growing much more cannabis than you can realistically you utilize on your own. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the, it just became something that it just made sense to put them in there. And all we had to really do was add some chicken wire around the fence so they couldn't get through the holes in the fence and, the space is big enough to where they don't dig out. We have three um, breeding does, so three females, and then we have one buck. And from that, we they produce a litter of kits about one every month or so, six to eight rabbits. And uh, wow. so that that allows us to basically harvest a rabbit a week um, to eat. Holy shit. So it's about 150 pounds of meat a year that come from that system. And we wow. do supplement, obviously, with grain, and uh, that's all, all sport, uh, sourced locally. Um, well, most of the grain that we get comes from within a hundred miles of the homestead. And then, um, the, the other thing we do is we, anytime we're pruning trees or weeding gardens or whatever, that's food for the rabbits. And we throw that in there. Um, and so most of the feed for the rabbits in the summertime is growing at the homestead. And that is being procured for them by the process of doing some weeding or some work anyways. So it's like when I'm doing weeding, I'm actually feeding my rabbits. And so you can see when you start to integrate all these different systems together, it's like you're doing one, one stroke of work, but you're getting a multiple yields out of it. I'm, I'm feeding my rabbit, I'm weeding the, the food forest, growing my better apples and strawberries. And then I'm feeding my rabbits, which are then growing my cannabis more effectively. And then I'm getting meat out of it too. And so by integrating all these things together, you get all of a sudden this really efficient humming system that uh, just keeps circulating resources around and around um we have a couple horses we produce maple syrup uh I, I, we have a, a food forest with um probably about 25 fruit trees in it that are just starting to fruit now and i've i've been grafting fruit trees over the course of the years and so we have over 100 apple trees maybe more that i'm slowly starting to transplant out i split um a bunch of the other perennials out into the pastures with the sheep so we're doing a silo pasture style system where the sheep are grazing amongst the, the young fruit trees and hazelnuts. Um, and so hopefully when those grow up, then they'll start to create shade for the sheep. And then once the system really matures, then we'll probably shift from gra grazing so much sheep 
to something more like pigs because we'll have a little less strong pasture due to all the shade created by the trees, but we'll have a lot more fruit and nuts falling down on the ground to feed the pigs. And so there's, awesome. yeah, it's just a, an idea of succession as our, as our systems grow and mature, as these perennial trees and crops grow and mature, then we're going to be adding and changing the way that we're growing, what we're doing, um, just trying to fit into the system rather than uh, try and hold it into one particular thing. We don't need to be growing lamb forever. Uh, if, if the property doesn't dictate that lamb is the best choice for the grazing ruminant, then we'll switch to something else. Does it, I mean, it probably sounds like it's taken several years to get to this point, but do you reach a point where the growth is, you know, not exponential, but accelerates and you're trying to figure, you know, it's harder and harder to figure out how to grow. Like, you know, the, the rabbits are one example. I know you harvest them, but you know, you could easily have a situation where you have a shitload of rabbits in a relatively short period of time. And obviously the plants are growing more all the time. And like, how do you manage how big this is growing naturally? And then by what, you know, what's your method of, or, or strategy for containing or growing it optimally or in the way that you'd like to? So there, uh, one of the permaculture principles is obtain a yield. And so when we're, when we're planting stuff, we're planting it with the intention of obtaining a yield with it. But all, oftentimes we're integrating other principles and at the same time, um, uh, value diversity, um, use, utilize marg like, uh, value and utilize marginal areas. And so like, I have one example right now, I've got hops growing up a black alder tree, which is a nitrogen fixing tree. And so theoretically the hops are gonna stress the tree physically, forcing it to release its nitrogen to the plants around it. And so that hop plant has a job. Um, so whether or not I ha harvest the hops, it's still doing some work for me. And um, so I, I'm actually, I'm looking at them, you know, walking past them thinking, I need to find time to go get these hops and dehydrate them, but I haven't had the chance to do it. The thing is, is if I don't end up doing it, it's okay because the hops are still serving some function. And so this is starting to happen where things are starting to, these yields that we're trying to obtain are slipping through our fingers because we don't have the time to necessarily mm -hmm. gather and, and glean all of them. Um, and so the, the trick is like when we, when we miss out on it, like how can, I, um, how can I have something else do that for me passively? And so another example is we've got tons of elderberries growing. Um, and right now I'm not sure if I'm going to have time to harvest them. Well, maybe in the future, I should make that area a place where my chickens are too. So that way, when they don't get to those elderberries, the berries fall down and they feed the chickens passively. And so that way, whether I harvest them or not, something's still good at happening from it. Man, um, and, and so that's so cool. It's how, it's how I approach Bitcoin mining too. And, and so like I, I mentioned dehydrating the hops. So I built a, a dehydrating box. I have I have a couple S nines. Just to be clear, you you weren't doing any of the Bitcoin stuff when we last spoke. I don't think were you? No, I hadn't gotten started with it. What what the impetus of that was that I had some solar panels that power the yurt, um, and so I I knew that there was times when there weren't guests there, and that power was just going to waste. So I tried to figure. I was I was looking for someone to help advise me on how to utilize that power and mine some Bitcoin, and then uh, I was introduced to a guy named Chet. I call him my Bitcoin mining mentor now. Um, Chet's been amazing, just kind of holding my hand and walking me through all the, whenever I have a technical problem, he helps me out a lot. But um, he gave me an S9 uh, just because he thought 
I he I remember him saying when he walked away after we plugged it into the solar panels at the yurt, he's like, I look forward to seeing what you do with the heat. And I was thinking to myself at the time, like, I don't know what you did. What do you mean? You know, I, I don't know what I'll do with the heat from this one little S9 Bitcoin miner. And uh, so I got that that initial miner just to mine with solar power at the yurt. And thankfully, it was given to me. So I had this is kind of an example of like, if you're given something, are you a kind of person that's going to take the take advantage of that gift right. or squander it? Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, since I had this miner, all of a sudden it's winter time. And so the solar panels aren't producing much power. I can't really use it to mine Bitcoin with. And so at the same time, it's cold and it's like, well, it's a little cold in our bedroom. So let's see if I can figure out a way to use it as a space heater. I started using it as a space heater. And then I realized, wow, this is actually pretty powerful as a, as a little heater. And uh, so then I started plumbing it into the cold air return uh, for when I had guests up at the main level of the house. It's just to supplement the electric heat that I already had. And I realized that it worked so well that I ended up getting a second S9 to do, to really, I was really starting to supplement the heat now with two going at once. Um, and from there, I was like, well, every, this thing's a perfect little heater. I was starting to grow my cannabis starts for the year and I had a cold frame. And this was the mistake that I made the previous years that I got greedy and I let the cannabis freeze in the cold frame um, before the season, before I had a chance to transplant them. And I had to start over from seed and I had an incredibly small cannabis yield the previous year because I had to start from scratch over again. So I was like, I'm not going to let this happen again. And I used the Bitcoin miner to keep that cold frame from freezing. And uh, basically I ran it overnight and made sure that it was always like 70 degrees in there. Um, and so it's just, I heard people talking about, and I've seen a guy, a business cat, I think doing a jerky with a S9 before. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, well, how hard can it be to make a, this thing is basically a one kilowatt dehydrator ready to go. All I have to do is build a box and shove it up against it with some trays. So I built that. And now that's been interesting too, to create, I've been created this incentive to like keep that thing dehydrating at all costs, right? I just want to be binding Bitcoin as much as I can. And so now I've started to go and find all these wild, the, the, the stuff that I would walk past on the, on the homestead and I knew that it had some medicinal property or whatever. I just kind of brushed it off. These weeds, um, skullcap or uh, henbit, some of the more obscure stuff that's not really used that often. I'm out there harvesting it, dandelion, burdock root, uh, this uh, uh, this one weed called purple dead nettle, which was actually a miracle plant. I have terrible allergies and that's that's a an antihistamine. And so I started making tea after I dehydrated this purple dead nettle with a Bitcoin miner and now my allergies are cured. And so it's like, because I started wow. using this Bitcoin miner, I started actually trying to play around with all these medicinal plants that are out there growing for free because now I have a way to preserve them and get some Bitcoin in return. It ends up being about a 30% rebate on the power usage. So it's like, if you have an electric dehydrator and you're not mining Bitcoin, you're, you're, you're giving up 30% of, of the value. Between the sats you get from mining, which you know probably is gonna be pretty low on an S9, but those and the benefit you get from using the heat elsewhere or the savings from otherwise you may we would have had to pay for that that heat or that power like does it roughly work out or is it is using an s9 for that purpose still more expensive than just buying electricity from the grid well so it's it's a different way of thinking about bitcoin mining because now you're like i said with my plants and even my animals i'm put, i'm giving them a job 
Right. So now my Bitcoin miners, it's it's main purpose is actually not to to produce the hashes. It's to produce the heat. Mm-hmm. And then the hashes are now the byproduct, which is the rebate in making my system more efficient. So an example is like, so I've been playing around on Nostr quite a bit. And I started posting pictures of stuff that I've been dehydrating with the Bitcoin miner. And I keep saying, you know, hey, if anybody wants this, you know, message me and I'll send it to you value for value, which is pay for the shipping. And so I ended up, you know, getting some catnip. I sold some catnip to somebody or I don't, I can't say sold. I gave it to them and they gave me stats in return once they received it. And some of this purple dead nettle as well. And just the act of, of that value for value sats actually made up for the cost of producing that whole batch of electricity. So then the Bitcoin was uh, free right. um, afterwards. And so by putting my miner to work, my miner is now producing a product, which I can turn into sats, which pays for the, the power cost difference. And then I get these sats as a rebate on top of it. And so like any, any business, like a closed uh, laundromat, let's say, you should be, if you're an electric laundromat drying with electricity you should be mining bitcoin because now you're just making your business that much more profitable i guess one of the pieces of that equation for them would be the the capex right like acquiring the miners initially you know versus just having the dryers there but if they if you have dryers already and you're going to throw all those away and replace them with bitcoin miners that's kind of a that takes some some questioning yeah. calculating um, yeah when you'd have but to probably starting one up now it's like the the cost of those miners versus the cost of the dryers uh is a totally different equation you know it's so fascinating to think about where this is going you know because i love seeing all the minor tinkerers out there you know hot tubs dry machines dehydrators you know hvac like everyone just you know you, you're taking a byproduct that is that has value, the heat, right? And you're using that and you're, so you're maximizing the yield, you know, you're maximizing your efficiency. And as you say, you're getting value in the form of heat that you otherwise would have had to pay for. And you're getting value in the form of sats, which you otherwise would have had to pay for. And, uh, you know, when, when this, you know, when this really develops, when there's really innovation here, when, uh, everything becomes more efficient, I mean, are we just going to be capturing that heretofore uncaptured yield like everywhere you know like anywhere where heat is needed are we going to use like miners or some sort of similar mechanism to apply it you know obviously the economics have 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 to work out and that's going to be the determining factor but it just it broadly speaking it seems like an emerging means of just reducing waste increasing yield and improving the economics of, of situations, especially when they have to do with heat, basically. Exactly. So if you're, if you're a uh, dehydrate, if your business is to be dehydrating things and uh, now you've started to use Bitcoin miners to do it, you can now have that subsidize the cost of your product and undercut your competitors, right. And sell much more product because you're, you have the same thing as everybody else, but it costs you 30% or even better, depending on the efficiency of your machine to produce that. And so that's going to also subsidize you paying back your, your CapEx because you're going to liquidate your product more quickly. And so the, the, uh, the way I like to think about it is like right now for the way, the way I use Bitcoin miners as, as workers, I'm actually looking for the cheapest dollar per terahash within reason, you know, like, I, I, like you said, an S9 doesn't get you very far but I'm not necessarily looking to buy the most efficient machine and pay the high dollar price per terahash for it 
because once also my hashing is intermittent, like these machines mm -hmm. are not running 24 seven, like a typical Bitcoin mine would be. Um, and so because it's intermittent, I'm not taking, I, I basically, my runway is way longer to, to mine those sats back that I paid for the miner in the first place. And so I want to basically spend as few sats on the miner as possible. So that way I can, even though I'm intermittent, I have a better chance of actually earning them back over the course of the time that I'm using the miner. And then theoretically, if the value of the sats goes up, then I can upgrade to a more efficient machine in the future. Um, and so that's been my strategy. I still actually haven't mined all the sats back that I've spent on my miners. I just keep buying more. <laughs> I keep, I'm like addicted to, to it now. And I, I keep getting more of them for different projects because it's like, okay, well, I want the dedicated miner for the, the dehydrator. And I want the one that is always just down there at the yurt that I can plug in. And now I've got a clothes dryer that I converted uh, to, and, and with the Airbnb, a lot of people were asking me like, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. You're only drying clothes how many times a week or whatever. Well, it's like, I have an Airbnb with two units and my own personal laundry. So that dryer in the summertime is running 24 seven pretty much, you know, that thing is always going. And so it was one of the, actually the highest expenses we had is for our electric power usage. And so it made a whole lot of sense for us to convert that into a Bitcoin miner. Um, and How did you convert just, it? Like, I literally cut a hole in the back of the dryer, and then I I put a, a six inch duct onto it, and then connected that ductwork to the the ex the exhaust from the miner. It's very simple. I mean, it was really kind of simple. You just had to take the risk in destroying your dryer potentially when you cut the hole um, to connect it all together. But and so I actually have the heating element still connected, and this is kind of like. We're always, I like to tiptoe on the edge of danger everywhere. If we turn it on with the with the Bitcoin miner and the heating element at the same time, I, I don't know if there's risk of having a fire, but so you right. have to turn the dryer on to air dry only and as a time dry. So there's a little bit of, not anyone can just come over and operate our dryer, you know, if they're going to mm, use the Bitcoin yeah. miner with it. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a very simple, just cut, like I, that's the other thing I, I want to try and show people that, there's like so like the amount of money that you need to spend to like accomplish some of these concepts is very little. The, the dehydrator box, I built that with stuff that I had laying around in the garage. Um, I only had to buy some aluminum screen for the, the trays, which was about 10 bucks. And then the rest of it was just my time building it and then putting the freaking miner up against it, you know, and same with the dryer. I spent less than a hundred dollars in all the duct work and uh, the couplings and stuff that I needed to convert it. And so I guess I did have to add a two an additional 220 volt circuit, which was part of that $100 cost. But it, it was very cheap, ultimately, um, to, to experiment with some of this stuff. The next, the next step that I'm going to is like going to be dunking some of the, the S9s into um, immersion and seeing if I can do a hot water heater and some like... Um, Schnitzel has been doing a lot of cool stuff with home heating and uh, immersion. So, and the, he did the hot tub and everything. Right. Uh, that was so cool. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's really mind blowing the opportunities that open up when you have a way of converting energy into money. So the optional, the, the mo the, the form of greatest optionality in, in our affairs and heat in a way that can be interrupted millisecond to millisecond without any problem, you know, and this is part of the reason why it's such a mind blowing advantage to energy grids as well, 
because energy grids are a you know as needed sort of delivery system and you need to be able to manage load and previously you know to offtake that energy it was hard to find offtakes for that energy you know you had you needed really energy intensive industries you know steel mills for example but they take a long time to get up and running. You can't shut them down for too long because things harden. You know, there's, it's not, you can't start and stop it in the milliseconds. You're starting stopping it in the hours. And there's, there's issues with both starting and stopping them. And they can't take infinite energy. Whereas something like a Bitcoin mine can effectively take infinite energy. They can start and stop on a millisecond depending on the need. And the only, you know, so-called loss is the opportunity lost of of not mining. But that's why, you know, the it's so advantageous to have these things on the grid that the grid is willing to pay you to shut off. You know, this is what's happening in ERCOT and in Texas uh, largely. And it's like, and I think that you know the same sort of benefit will will trickle down into the smaller operations in our life as you you've been explaining because it's very beneficial to be able to turn energy into two extremely useful assets in the form of money and heat and, you know, and be able to do that in a very flexible way. You can interrupt it. It can be very intermittent. And so it really seems like this is going to become an industry, you know, like that people will be building homes like your, you know, your HVAC system or your heating system. And this kind of stuff is, you know, it's, Again, I don't I don't know enough about the economics to make this statement definitively, but it certainly seems like the the attributes are there to integrate these things into again, things that need heat and that are using energy already and that could benefit from, you know, being subsidized by the sats that are derived from from you know, using them in that way. Just and and tinkerers like you are kind of like at the forefront of figuring out like where this is beneficial and what are the economics of it and all that kind of stuff. It's so cool. What did you mention a few other th ways in which you're using miners or is that, is that it? The dehydrating, um, the clothes dryer. We did. Uh, so we had a lamb that was born two pounds. Typically they're a, a small lamb would be six pounds and average is closer to 10. So this lamb couldn't stand. It couldn't eat. It couldn't maintain its body temperature. So we brought it inside and I just pointed that S9 at it at 500 watts. I dialed it down. So it's not, everyone was like saying, oh my God, you're making that lamb deaf by pointing that Bitcoin miner right at its head. But we just blew a gentle warm breeze on that lamb and that kept its body temperature up enough to where it survived. And then wow. we were able to tube feed it and then eventually got to the point where it could jump out of this little bin that had the Bitcoin miner pointed at it. And then it, we, you know, we took it outside and started bottle feeding it. And so we, we saved this lamb. Uh, with the with the Bitcoin miner, typically we try to do it in the past with hair dryers, and you have to sit there and hold the dryer, and and it's a little too hot, so you have to keep moving it. With the Bitcoin miner, we were able to actually like dial it in to be just perfect and let it just blow this nice gentle warm breeze on that lamb and saved its life. I mean, that was one of the the just one of the impromptu kind of right, right. uses where it's like, what well, we what are we going to do? We we have to do something. Let's try this, and it worked. Um, but yeah, I think that. The cold frame, so growing the cannabis starts, the dehydrator, heating a house, using it as a space heater. Um, and so actually, I do mine with the solar at the yurt, and I've actually upgraded the, the solar panels to, um, I've expanded the amount of panels I have, so I can actually hash a little bit more. Um, and so I actually just got a new composting toilet. And there was actually options in this composting toilet for DC heaters. 
to evaporate the uh, extra liquids that end up in there. And so I was like, I don't want to get these DC heaters. I got a heater right here. And so now when I'm mining with the solar at the yurt, I'm actually using that heat to evaporate the liquids in the composting toilet. Um, and so just getting a double usage out of that free power, uh, why not? Wow. That's awesome. When you, when you're drinking the, what was the name of the tea that you said that you used the dehydrator on? Purple dead. The one that helped you out. Purple dead nil. Net, nettle. Yep. Nettle. Sorry. Um, does that tea, do you get a little more satisfaction when you're drinking it? Not just knowing the, you know, the enjoyment of the flavor and the health benefits, but knowing that like that tea was made by basically a sats machine, a miner, like the, both the, the satisfaction you, you're getting the satisfaction and you got some sats out of that tea. Does that enhance the experience for you? I got to imagine it does. Oh man, I, all of this stuff. So a lot <laughs> <laughs> the tea, I mean, I, first of all, I wouldn't have any of this stuff had I not built the, the miner because I could never justify spending the money on a dehydrator, like a, a good commercial, like a good quality dehydrator, like an Excalibur or something like that to do the size that I've got one kilowatt is pretty expensive, few, several hundred bucks. And so I could never justify um, doing that. You can actually right now buy an S9 for probably less than $200. I bet you could find one and you could find some, some plywood and some stuff to make it. And you, you would be making basically the same dehydrator for a fraction of the cost. If you can, if you're handy enough to do it yourself, but anyways, it's so all the things that, that I'm producing with this thing wouldn't have happened. And the fact that they're there now, I like need to put it all in a box and take a picture of it. Cause it's just fantastic. All the, the shelves are filled with all these cool little ingredients. Um, and so I ended up making some pear ciders. Uh, with, so I, I gleaned some pears from my neighbor last fall. I had them in the freezer. I had to clear out the freezer space for all the stuff that we're getting this year. And so I made some ciders and I used the ingredients that I had stacked up from the Bitcoin miner uh, dehydrator. Because in the past, I wasn't going to just harvest dandelion root and then use it right away. I, there, I could never find time to like, harvest it and then use it within the window of which it would be good. But now that I have it preserved, it was there waiting for me. And so I made uh, a dandelion uh, burdock root pear cider. I made a spice, uh, a spice bush wild rose pear cider, um, hen bit pear cider, all these different flavors that you would never really get anywhere else. I made them because I had this Bitcoin miner uh, dehydrator. And then I brought those to the Lake Satoshi retreat. And so people got to, to experience that cider as well. And so, That's yeah, amazing. it's just, it's really cool uh, how like you, you end up stacking, like now I have built, I've taken some of my living capital, right. And, and preserved it for future use. And I have all these ingredients, I call it the apothecary, you know, where I can go in there, find right. some yarrow, uh, some hops, whatever it might be. Um, I'm planning on making peach cider next because we're harvesting peaches right now. Yeah. I mean, kind of similar to transacting with Bitcoiners with Bitcoin. I was saying before, and I think you share this opinion or feeling that like it, it just feels better. I got to imagine that consuming food, not only that, you know, grew on your land and you know, you have that intimacy with it, but knowing that it was the production involved, you know, Bitcoin in some capacity, it must, uh, again, enhance the experience, or at least it would for me, but you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty crazy Bitcoiner, so Maybe that's just me and you and not everybody, but I can't, I can't imagine like sipping on tea at night and knowing that 
you know, a Bitcoin miner dehydrated this. And I think that's, yeah. You're trying to participate in Bitcoin, in the Bitcoin network. If you're using Bitcoin mining to produce some of your products, and it's just another layer of how you get into everything that you're doing. And that Mm -hmm. makes it that much more enjoyable for anyone that's getting, getting these products and myself included. Absolutely. I, it's fantastic. That, that tea is like changed my life. I I used to have to take Benadryl. You're, I missed the last little bit. You, you were coming in and out uh, on the internet connection, but you were saying you used to have to take Benadryl. What, what, what allergies were you suffering from? And, and has the tea like completely fixed them? Yeah. If I drink, so I have the spring and the fall, um, pretty like sometimes to the point where it can be like, or whatever, I'm like laying on the couch and I'm useless. And this has been, I, I took. And, um, am I cutting in and out still? You're cutting in and out still. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, long Maybe story that's short, our cue. <laughs> yeah, the ener- the the allergies um, never been able to find a good remedy for them, and it's just been like the most natural thing growing for free in my backyard. Uh, and now I drink a cup of tea every four hours during that season, zero symptoms. Wow. Man. Anyone who has allergies should serious. It's like fantastic. Is that a known thing that that um plant is good for allergies i looked it up on i just searched on on it like so i i know what the plants are and then i just search what what their uses are right uh i'm like okay i I know that's dandelion and i can probably dehydrate that but what could i use it for should i do it and so i looked at this henbit thing and i was like oh shit it's a it's an antihistamine well i gotta try that out you know and um yeah and it's so I mean, I, I think we we spoke on this last time on our first chat, but I think part of the reason why so many Bitcoiners, I mean, there, there's this, you you want to both be independent and sovereign and uh, have a lifestyle that is most conducive to, you know, what your goals or what's meaningful to you. And for a lot of people, it's, you know, vibrant health. And so that means, you know, having good, healthy, wholesome food available to you and even having, you know, at least knowing the medicinal properties of things that are in your area so that, you know, you can avail, avail of them if needed. Like, I think that resonates so strongly with a lot of us, but then there's also the component of community, which, you know, if you're just by yourself in the mountains, you know, hundred kilometers from anyone, you're not getting that. And so you, you know, there's a, I think a lot of us are thinking about or attempting to find the, the proper balance there, but man, it's just, it, I mean, as you're saying all that, and this is not news to me, you, or anyone listening, just how far we've gone from knowing what, you know, good health is and, and doing the right things to foster it. And as I hear you speaking, I mean, you're, you, you're taking a relatively small plot of land and you're applying these permaculture principles to it. And what do you know, like it's making available to you so many of the constituents that will allow you to be strong, vital, vibrant energetic, all those things from, you know, the food and your nutrition to the medicinal properties to I'm sure, you know, the air and the soil and the, you know, and, and, and 
not to be diminished in terms of health, like the meaning you derive from your work. That's a huge aspect. I mean, how many people have a soul sucking job? And, you know, obviously that impacts your health, your mental health, your gut bacteria, your, you know, it's all intertwined, obviously. And to know that you're uh, embedded in such a, in such meaningful work and that work itself is so conducive to your own health. I mean, it, it, uh, I think it's something to strive for. And I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of us probably have eyes on doing something similar at some point in the future, which is why, you know, conversations with you are so interesting. And, uh, which is why I'd love to see, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're doing this already, but you mentioned even, even the dehydrator stuff. I mean, do you put out, you know, is any of this open sourced in any way? Like, do you put out what you've done, videos, blueprints, whatever the hell, like, you know, cause I feel like someone like you, who's, go, who's doing so much of this cool shit, you gotta be sharing it as much as possible, you know? It's all on Noster. Um, that's where I'm sharing it. I, yeah, I will make enough. like a little uh, a tw Twitter post about it, but it's very vague. And I just typically direct people over to Noster to get the full picture. But the, uh, so what we're discussing, I guess, is the difference between princ applying principles and applying techniques. And so like what I'm doing are, are techniques that are applicable to my particular situation. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to inspire people to take the bigger picture principles and apply them and figure out their own ways to right. make their techniques to accomplish the same thing. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm doing this applied permaculture class is to, to focus mostly on teach. Sorry, you cut, out, you cut out again. Uh, yeah. But the, the, the applied permaculture class, the point is, is that I'm going to teach the bigger principles so that you can go home and then find the techniques that are appropriate for you to start applying these things. And, right. and figure out how Bitcoin mining might work for you at home, figure out how what you might be able to do to produce some of your own uh, sustenance and nutrition, um, how, how to improve uh, your interaction with your community and develop these different forms of capital, so on and so forth. This applied permaculture class was the thing you were referencing earlier, where people are going to come to the, the homestead and you're going to show them around and that kind of stuff. That's right. Yeah. And is yeah, there September going to be 17th? Oh, is there going to be an online portion of that or is it all on site? So people have asked that it sounds like a lot of people want to come and there's, it's a limited, I can't host a 50 person course. You know, I can only fit. I literally only have like 20 chairs. So right, right. Uh, it's, we're selling 21 tickets just for the memes. Uh -huh. um, but people have asked if I can do some sort of stream or recording of it. And I just don't know if I want to, just because this is the first real sure, course sure. that I'm throwing to like complicate it with this technical aspect that hundred percent throw me off. 100%. Um, but in the future, definitely there will be more educational content coming from me through the internet. You know, uh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the goal. Like I said, we want to be a permaculture and homesteading school. And a big portion of that is we've got the Starlink internet. I can connect to everybody, unify all the Bitcoiners out there remotely as well as in person. So Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with that approach. I think the first one, you just want to be focused on the actual material and the people there and, and not have to worry about other shit and see how it goes. And it'll, you know, it'll probably even, you'll figure out which content should be included or shouldn't or wasn't and should be and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I think there's going to be a massive hunger for this type of uh, knowledge and information and know-how, particularly put through a Bitcoin lens. And so whenever the time comes for you to offer that to a, an online audience. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people interested in, you know, in consuming it or listening to it. 
yeah, and you got to have Bitcoin if you want to take the course. That's all I'm taking for payment. So if you want to figure, if you don't have the Bitcoin and you want to take the class and learn how to do it, you got to figure out how to get Bitcoin. I can I help you it. with that. Get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, only well, man, Yeah, 100%. I love it. Um, anything else that you wanted to cover before we shut it down today? Uh, there was uh, one little thing too with the, in regards to the Bitcoin mining. And we got, we kind of touched on it, which, which is like, there's like the big scale Bitcoin miners, and then there's the small scale home, home, uh, home miners, mm -hmm. uh, the big Bitcoin miners, they, why are the question is like, why are they not taking this adva advantage of this heat? And it's because in order to, they, they'd have to like totally change their business model, right? They have to be an expert in Bitcoin mining and in food dehydration at the same time. And so the scale doesn't really work out. And plus they're spending a lot of their time, I'm sure just like maintaining and keeping all the, the equipment running and optimally hashing, right? So it's like we have an advantage as the home miners to be producing these um, more custom small scale products. And so I have an idea. I, I don't know if I'll ever have time to do it, but like you can now, um, this guy, Zach Bomsta is making these um, custom control board extensions that will allow you to do stuff. So for example, you can get something, I think it's called the Loki board, which allows you to plug it into an S19 control board. And now you can run one hash board from an S19 on 110 power. And so you can get the efficiency gains of a new gen miner with uh, the 110 power, like an S9. Mm -hmm. And so now instead of getting, let's say 10 tera hash on my, de my dehydrator, I can get 30 and I could triple the efficiency. And so I, my, my intention is to create these custom built products, right? Like I'm just going to take apart an S19, turn it into three different dehydrators, make a kit that's all stacked flat in a box, ship it to you, and you just assemble it. And now you've got this dehydrator that you can use that should cost uh, maybe a little bit. I don't know. I don't know what the price will be. I haven't built it yet, but theoretically, you're going to be able to buy these custom built products from garage tinkers like me. And I hope other people do this too, where you can make these um, for the, someone who's got the aptitude to put it together you can convert your clothes dryer with a kit or you can convert your hot water heater with a kit. And it, cause there's gotta be, there's an idea in permaculture too, of, of this idea of succession. And I think this is also what Bitcoin is on. It's on a path of succeeding from one use case to the next, as the network grows and changes, we use Bitcoin in different ways. As the network grows and changes, it's not, we, there's, we're not going to take a jump from home miners building uh, uh, hot water heaters to every hot water heater having a Bitcoin miner in it. There has to be steps in between. And I think the next step is for these home miners who have figured out how to do this stuff to start building these things at some sort of scale. Not obviously, I like for example, if I wanted to build these dehydrators, I probably will be able to do that over the winter and I'd be able to make five of them, right? Mm -hmm. and, I'll, and I'll just sell those five. But that's more Bitcoin mining dehydrators out there that will you know decentralize the network even more and then provide some sort of utility for the people who get them point is is that there are steps i think on on this uh path of procession from one use case to the next and we i think we like to think about this idea of hyper bitcoinization but you you like like a you can't get a hundred year old tree by wishing it to grow faster you literally just have to wait a hundred years for it to grow that big and Bitcoin is, I think, subject to the same rules of nature where it just has to grow and we just have to be patient and let things change and evolve as things move forward. So, Yeah, I 
think that's very well said and and perhaps particularly uh, salient or important in light of the ever ongoing scaling debates in Bitcoin and Bitcoin should be, you know, bigger, more adopted, all this kind of stuff by now, perhaps having that sort of mentality or framework in approaching it would be, uh, well, long beneficial in the long term and, and perhaps keep us from screwing anything up, but time will tell. Um, speaking actually, of time, I, you got to go. I, uh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so th that was one thing I wanted to touch on too, is like this idea of the layer twos being a scaling solution for, to like allow more people to use Bitcoin. The way I like to think about it is all these solutions are just giving me the person who already has Bitcoin more utility for my Bitcoin. Like now I have the option to use Bitcoin on chain or Bitcoin on lightning. And if the situation is conducive for it, I'll use one or the other. It's not, I, I don't think that um, we're not in the place right now to be worried about how Bitcoin's going to scale to everybody in the world to be using it. Because honestly, right now it's still a tiny little subculture. Mm. Um, like I, I think there's enough of us out there if we all work together to create our own little subculture circular economy. But there's no reason to be worried about figuring out how to let everyone transact on this thing. All these different options are just ways for that give us who already have Bitcoin, who are already participating in the network, more utility to make our Bitcoin work for us more. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's my perspective on it. It's like if lightning works, I, I'm going to use it. Uh, and if something changes in the future and there's something better or lightning stops working, I still I'm not I don't have a channel with uh, all my Bitcoin on it. Right. I'm just right. using lightning for what I need it for. And then most of my Bitcoin still on chain where it's safe. And this is also this goes back to that same idea of the permanent money, permanent culture thing. If any of these these scaling layers or anything that we build on top of Bitcoin fails, it always crumbles back down to layer one. And this is the idea if we build a permanent culture that if we can do all this crazy stuff, build these civilizations. But if we have this concept of permaculture underlying everything, then it always just crumbles back to layer one and we have somewhere to rebuild from. We don't end up like the Egyptian culture where it's like all of a sudden, how did they build these pyramids? How did the, 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 all that information is lost? Because it literally crumbled down to zero. And we don't have to do that if we have Bitcoin and permaculture operating in tandem. Yeah, I totally agree. And that that succession notion with permaculture, I think, is instructive as well. It's what made, made me think about it because it's sometimes the case in Bitcoin that, as you say, people are trying to solve problems that aren't problems right now. They might be problems in the future, but also they might not. But, at, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but in permaculture, you don't look out you know, 10 years and say, well, this is going to be a problem then. And, you know, like you're, you're taking one step in front of the other, you're responding to the ecosystem as it develops. And I think, you know, in many cases, but particularly in Bitcoin, that would be a wise approach as well. You know, as things develop, as things evolve, you respond as and when you need to, not in advance of, and, um, but the debate, it doesn't stop the the debates from raging on and, you know, hopefully uh, we have the wisdom to navigate all that properly so that we do have a permanent culture and a, you know, a permanent foundation upon which to build, you know, a better world and a long lasting, prosperous, peaceful, meaningful civilization for us all. So TBD on that, I guess, but that's what we're here for. Yeah, well, we, man, I, we just take the permaculture principles and ethics and we, we participate in the Bitcoin net network. Um, I think that would be driving us in that right direction. Um, 
and and to to your what you talk about a lot, it it creates an incentive to work towards your greatest ideal as a person. Uh, all you have to do is just follow. There's not rules, you know. There's there's no one way to do. It's not the way. There's just ways, and you're mm. just figuring out how to apply those uh, to your own aptitude, situation, and circumstance. And they're just very powerful tools to facilitate us striving for our best ideal, and then creating this bedrock that if shit hits the fan, we've got some stability and some resilience there. Hundred percent, man. I can't wait to. Uh see you put out more content. I want to see you, you know, I, I want more of this. I want the synthesis of permaculture perspective, uh, ideals, approaches, you know, overlapped on Bitcoin, because I think it will elucidate a lot of meaningful uh, insights by which we can use to orient ourselves in relation to both, th both things and the success of both things. And so uh, I know you're a busy man, but uh you know, don't delay, get, get on that ship because uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more. I can't believe it, it was uh, a year since we last spoke too. It's crazy how, how fast uh, time goes by, but appreciate hanging out again today. It's always great to catch up and uh, we'll do it again. Maybe in, you know, another 12 months time. Yeah, man, get your, uh, start posting your links to your podcast on Noster. I'll zap you. All right. I'll get All you right. some, some V for V that way. The thing I, hasn't been working for me that great. So, oh, really? Yeah. yeah I, 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 the thing is not that I'm, I love, I love Nostra. I'm just, I'm not on much of anything at all these days. You know, I just, I don't know. The digital world uh, is not quite as compelling as it once was, but I, uh, I don't think that's a permanent thing. I think I just needed to take a little bit, bit of a break and, and, and come back into the, the fresh air of Nostra because Twitter is such a, a dumpster fire so much of the time. But anyways, well, man, thanks, uh, yeah. thank you for the opportunity to to talk with you again. And uh, I look forward to, I, I always love hearing what you got going on. So I'll be listening in as you're making more stuff and awesome, uh, brother. We'll talk again. Well, good luck with everything. Keep up the awesome work and, and yeah, we'll talk again soon in the future. All right. Later. See you, brother.